Amen. Good morning. So this morning we are going to talk about existentialism, which either you're really excited about or you're slowly pulling out your phone to hit a little bit of an alarm for about 30 minutes or so to wake up from a nap. You're sitting here and you're maybe thinking, existentialism? What is that, first off, and why are we talking about it? Well, what we're going to see is that existentialism and that philosophy, which is fairly modern, actually relates with this passage today in Luke 19. But we have to start and ask the question, what is existentialism? The problem is, in defining existentialism, is like defining love. Depending on who you ask, you're going to have a different definition. But maybe you could say existentialism is this fairly modern philosophy that the human condition is failed. And we live in a world that's like a revolving door. It's a pattern that just keeps going around and around and around. And life is kind of meaningless and absurd because of that revolving door and the failure of who we are as humans. A very, very famous existential book is in the Bible. It's called Ecclesiastes, written by King Solomon. He says this very famously in chapter 1. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes. It's the revolving door. But the earth remains forever. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. For there is nothing new under the sun. This idea of meaninglessness, absurdism, the life is continually revolving and everything is repeating. And this philosophy is the prevailing philosophy of our culture. Whether or not you recognize it, this is the philosophy. Because what happens is, when you come to this understanding that life is just revolving around this pattern, and it's seemingly meaningless and absurd, and we as human beings are failed, so we're not able to create something that works, we're not able to create a system that works, you begin to indulge life for yourself. You begin to chart your own path, make your own way, figure out how to make yourself happy. You have one life to live, so live it well. Live it the way you want to live it. Indulge your passions. Make your own peace. We see that, right? It's a very me-centered lifestyle. But see, Solomon wasn't the only one that talked about existentialism. Some very famous thinkers, Ernest Hemingway, Soren Kierkegaard, Fedor Dostoevsky, Friedrich Nietzsche, And maybe the most famous of all, Albert Camus, he wrote a book called The Stranger, which if you're like, wow, I want to know more about existentialism, read that book, and then you'll throw it down and be like, I don't even know what just happened. Because it's absurd, which is the whole point of the book. But see, this philosophy isn't just for highbrow thinkers. This is something that prevails in our arts and media right now. Think about books like The Road, A Hundred Years of Solitude, Fight Club, The Catcher in the Rye, these are all existential works. Shows like Breaking Bad, The Walking Dead, Seinfeld. Movies like Citizen Kane, Groundhog Day, The Matrix, No Country for Old Men. These are all tapping into existentialism. The idea that life is revolving and meaningless and absurd and we are failures as people. 
And right now you're thinking, Carter, um, we're in church. I don't know if you realize that's supposed to be a sermon, and you're talking about existential philosophy. Well, the reason I'm talking about it is because it taps into something that is true. Life can be and can seem meaningless and absurd. And it can seem like a pattern that continues to go around and around. And when you wrestle with this, when you think about this, you come up with two decisions to make. You either say, okay, I'm going to make my life for myself. I'm going to do what I need to do to be happy and to enjoy this life that I have, regardless of whether it's meaningless or not. Or you say, the things out here are meaningless, but I wonder if there's meaning outside of here. I wonder if I take my gaze off of the horizontal and look vertical, is there something meaningful outside of this existence? You know, Jesus talks in some of these terms. He says, don't seek treasure in heaven or treasure on earth because moth and rust destroy and thieves steal. He says, if you seek to gain your life, you're going to lose it. But if you are willing to lose your life for my sake, you'll gain it. The, the idea that don't live for things here because there's no meaning found in that. The meaning is living for things that are outside and they transcend into the here and now. And Solomon ends this very famous existential book in Ecclesiastes with this idea that we're going to wrap our minds around today and that Luke is going to pick up and push forward. Here's how he ends the entire book. The last and final word is this. Fear God and do what he tells you. And that's it. Eventually, God will bring everything that we do into the open and judge it according to its hidden intent, whether it's good or evil. And this is the idea that Luke picks up this morning in the very famous passage, the triumphal entry of Jesus, the Palm Sunday message. So if you have your Bibles, you could turn there in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28, where it says this, And he had said these things, he, Jesus, and he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And this is literally going up. We've been talking about this. Right now they're in Jericho, this region near the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place on earth, 1,400 feet below sea level. Try to imagine that. And they're going up to 2,500 feet above sea level, literally walking up to Jerusalem. And as they get to Jerusalem, it's about an eight-hour or so journey, they come on top of the Mount of Olives maybe the most breathtaking, spectacular view in all, of Israel, in all of Jerusalem because it overlooks the entire city, but it overlooks the temple. I want to show you a picture. This is the view on top of the Mount of Olives. That big golden dome right there, it's called the Dome of the Rock. This was not taken 2,000 years ago. I wasn't able to find one. This is taken recently. So, that is where the temple was. You can see the wall all the way around by where the dome is. That would have been the temple. So as you stand up on top of the Mount of Olives and look down, you not only see the whole city of Jerusalem, but it's as if you're standing on top of the temple. It's as if you're peering down inside of the activities in the temple. And why is that important? Well, imagine what that felt like for a Jew. This right here is the most important place in the world. This is where God and man mix at the temple, the holy city. And Jesus and his disciples ascend this mountain and they look at this view 
And you can imagine the emotion that they're feeling, but also the questions they're asking. Jesus is about to enter this city, claiming to be the Son of God, the King. How is that city going to receive him? Because the people and the leaders in that city, they hold supreme authority. And are they going to want Jesus to be king? And so what we see in the story is it continues and and Jesus looks at two disciples and he tells them this in verse 30. Go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt or a donkey tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So Jesus takes two disciples and he says, go down into the village below. You're going to find a donkey there. Untie it and bring it up to me. And when the owner naturally comes out and says, why are you stealing my donkey? Just say, the Lord has need of it. And so you're reading this and you're like, what? Why is Jesus stealing a donkey? Or maybe you don't think that because you struggle like me to, to really slow down and read and read passages like this with fresh and new eyes because you've heard it so many times. We kind of have Sunday school goggles sometimes, right? We just read through, we know what happens, we know the story. Maybe you were in the play. Maybe you were really, really good at school and you, everyone liked you, so you got to be Jesus or one of the disciples. Or maybe you were like me and you had to be the donkey. I don't know. But sometimes we can't read these things in the way that we should. We have to slow down. And so you slow down and you say, wait, why a donkey? And why is Jesus stealing a donkey? That doesn't seem right. Well, Zechariah 9.9 says this. This is written 500 years before Jesus is born. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foil of a donkey. 500 years before Christ, this is prophesied. The king is going to ride a donkey into Jerusalem. It's really cool, right? And the question that, that is begging for, to be asked is, what type of king is Jesus? Is he the political king? Is he going to restore Jerusalem? Or is he a different type of king? Well, we see in this passage that Jesus is a type of king that doesn't even have his own donkey. I mean, imagine that. Kings that would enter the city come in opulence. Horses and donkeys and chariots and trumpets and an entire parade. Jesus comes with a few followers and some people around him. And he has to go borrow someone's donkey. Well, what does that say about the kind of king that Jesus is? He's humble. He's approachable. He is the type of king that is a king for people that can't afford donkeys. He's the kind of king for people that don't have the status and the opulence. But he's not only simply an approachable and humble king. He is a king that is very strong and has authority because he says to his disciples, if the owner is going to say to you, why are you stealing my donkey? You just tell him, the Lord has need of it. Meaning, the Lord, the one who is overall in charge of all and actually owns all, he needs it. And so the disciples, these two guys, are like, all right, here we go. And they go down and it says in verse 32, so they went away and they found it just as they had told him. And maybe they were shocked or maybe by now they're like, of course Jesus is going to see a donkey down there. 
I mean, he's like fed thousands of people. He's raised the dead. He's cast out demons. I mean, knowing a donkey's down in the village isn't a big deal. And then it says in 33, as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, they're like, fingers crossed. Why are you untying the colt? And they're like, the Lord has need of it. And we don't know what happens, but the next verse says, and they brought it to Jesus. So it worked. It worked, thankfully. The donkey came, they brought the donkey back up to Jesus. And then it says, they threw their, colt, their cloaks on the donkey, and they put Jesus on the donkey. Which is to say, they put Jesus in the position of authority. They put him on his steed, the king. So this whole scene is laden with royal significance. The king is overlooking his city and he's preparing to enter into this city as king. And it's interesting when you look at this passage, some scholars say that it is analogous with some other passages about royal entries. Most notably in in ancient Maccabean literature and in this writer Josephus, who was a Jewish scholar, they talk about the entrance of, a, of these kings into cities, and you're maybe thinking, oh, who cares? Is that just like a cool fact? The reason is, is because in all those other stories, the kings that enter the city are not entering to be made king. They're entering the city as king. They're not coming into the city to try to claim victory. They're coming into the city already victorious. And that says something. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem not to try to get popular vote to be made king. He's entering Jerusalem as king already, as victorious. And the ironic and sadly ironic situation here is the people of Jerusalem think that God is in this little room right now called the Holy of Holies that one man gets to go into once a year. And he's actually riding into their city on a donkey that he borrowed. And they don't even notice. They don't come out. In verse 36, it says that he, Jesus, rode along. And they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, so meaning there's more than just the twelve. So sometimes when you read disciples in the Bible, it doesn't just mean the twelve. It can mean followers, a crowd, people that have been with Jesus for some time. They began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And maybe you were reading this this week and you thought to yourself, wait, 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 where are the palm branches? I thought there were palm branches. I'm not imagining that. I'm pretty sure in the play I was a palm branch laying guy. There are palm branches in, in Matthew and Mark and in John, but Luke omits that detail. Because see, what's being recited here is Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 was used in a very famous festival. Festival of the Tabernacle, where they built these little shelters. They would, for a period of time, eat and spend time in them. And, and the idea was that during this festival, you remember the journey that the Jews had in the wilderness, waiting for God to deliver them to the promised land. And so Matthew, Mark, and John are picking up this connection with Psalm 118 and with the laying of palm branches because palm branches were used 
in the festival of the tabernacle. And what he's saying in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the narrators, Matthew, Mark, and John, is that the king is coming into the city to deliver people from the wilderness and bring them to the promised land. It's beautiful how deep and rich scripture is, but Luke takes that detail out. He removes the palm branches, and the question is why? He wants you to see something different. He wants you to look actually even earlier to why Psalm 118 was used. Psalm 118 is a psalm used for the royal entry of a king. And so Luke is wanting us in the audience to focus our gaze squarely on Jesus being king and the king coming into the city to claim his people and establish his system, his kingdom. But not everybody's excited. Says this in 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, note they don't say Lord, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so these Pharisees are in the crowd. They're curious. They want to see what's going to happen. They've heard about Jesus, so they come out. And they notice the crowds are quoting Psalm 118, which is a psalm used to usher in a king. And they come over to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we understand that you're a teacher. We've heard that you've done some great things. That's awesome. This is inappropriate. You're not king. You're a teacher. You don't rule, and you're not going to rule. So tell the disciples and these people around here to stop. And Jesus looks at them and says, if they didn't speak, if they were silent, these stones would say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees leave, and you can imagine what happens. Maybe they go back to the temple. They get their Pharisee buddies together, and they go, hey, I know we were worried about this Jesus guy. He's crazy. He thinks the rocks talk to him. It's okay. We're good. It's fine. No big deal. And so Jesus progresses forward now down the mountain towards the temple. It says in verse 41, he drew near and saw the city. And you can see it kind of the language is making you slow down. And it said he wept over it. Saying, would that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The story slows down, and it says that Jesus wept over the city. And it's not a single tear. When you read it in the Greek, it's telling you that Jesus was audibly sobbing. It's the kind of, I I can't breathe, crying, as he overlooks the city. And he does something peculiar. As he's sobbing, he casts judgment on the city and its people. You would maybe expect for Jesus to be sobbing and be like, it's okay, guys, I'm coming in. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise. I'm going to offer forgiveness. But he gives judgment in tears. It's important to hold on to. And you need to notice here as he's sobbing and crying over the city, where's Jerusalem? Where are its citizens? Now, there is a crowd ushering Jesus in, but it's not a big crowd. They know he was coming. They knew that Jesus was arriving. He's kind of a celebrity. 
I mean, the curious Pharisees came out to see what was going to go on. And Jerusalem and its citizens are just going about life. They don't care. They're just doing what they always do. And one scholar says that as you read this passage, you can almost imagine that something is ringing in the background, which was uttered a few verses earlier, which is, we don't want this man to rule over us. Ringing in the background as Jesus weeps. And as he weeps in tears and casts judgment. You know, there are a lot of verses and passages in the Bible that are hope for the believer and judgment for the unbeliever. And we state them a lot. And we should, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Maybe you've said that before. Maybe you have it memorized. It's got to be one of the most memorized verses. Maybe you've said it to a friend or a family member or somebody that follows a different religion. Maybe somebody that just thinks they're going to be good. I'm just going to be good. But have you ever said it with tears? Sometimes, you, you know, I ask myself, how does God look at people of other religions? How does He look at people that follow cultures that are existential and pushing them to be all about me? I think He looks at them through tears. I mean, Jesus does here. So the question for us is, should we ever make statements like that without saying it through tears? We should never contradict the truth. We should never be afraid to share the truth. Jesus isn't. But He doesn't do it with an air of self-righteousness and a puffed-up chest. He does it in tears. He claims truth with concern. And He says this, they don't know the things that make for peace. You see, that's one of the things that we care about most. If I were to say raise your hand, which I'm not, don't worry. If I were to say raise your hand if you want peace. If you don't raise your hand, you're weird. Don't do that. Everybody wants peace, right? No one's like, nope, don't want peace. Terrible idea. We all want peace. We try to find peace. We try to make peace. We try to manufacture peace. See, one of the problems is we have a very faulty definition of peace. The peace that Jesus talks about, the peace we see often in the Bible, is not tranquility and harmony. It's not just this idea that we just have peace of mind. Though God does deliver that, and He will deliver it when you ask, the peace that we see in the Bible is shalom. And shalom is a more whole concept of peace. It makes broken things whole. Here's what it is. It's the gift of God that embraces salvation for all and in all material, social, and spiritual realities. That's the definition that many have for shalom. And you're like, well, I don't have any idea what that means. Well, salvation is the deliverance or the redemption of something, right? Something broken and not whole is redeemed. It finds salvation, And so shalom, peace, as Jesus is speaking about, is taking things that need to be made whole, that are broken, that are disordered, and making them whole, making them fixed, renewed, redeemed. And we hear that and we're like, great. And we know the promises in Revelation where Jesus says, I'm making all things new. I am bringing shalom, right? 
and it seems so far off. It's like, that's really far away. And we hear, we know the Lord's Prayer. It says, our God, our Father who art in heaven, where perfect shalom is, peace, wholeness. Hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, where on earth as it is in heaven. The idea of bringing shalom, perfect wholeness and peace to earth, and it still seems so far away. It's like, what, what does that look like for me? 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us this, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Which is to say, God's desire is for shalom, is for perfect whole peace to come here and to be here and to reside here and to redeem and to deliver broken things. And so as an ambassador, as someone that God makes his appeal through, we are to be people of shalom. We are to be people that seek the things that make for peace. And so what does that look like? Well, I think it looks like seeking to restore a broken relationship. Something broken, looking to make it whole. It looks like sharing the gospel with those that don't know it. Their soul is not whole. And you're seeking peace. It looks like sharing a meal with someone hungry or providing a place for somebody that doesn't have anywhere to stay. Something's wrong there. Something's not whole. It looks like seeking to make yourself whole by every single day getting up and spending time in personal worship and reading your Bible and praying. It looks like taking your spouse or your significant other on a date so your marriage stays whole and finding a good work-life balance so your family stays whole. It even looks like keeping your yard nice, which I heard some grunts out there because you're like me and you're like, I got to mow the grass every three days right now. What's happening? And you're like, you lost me with the yard thing there, Carter. Well, listen, if you let your yard go and it just looked like a jungle, it would look disordered. But if you order it, you make it whole. You make it beautiful. You take something that will go wild without controlling it and you make it beautiful, you make it whole. Seeking shalom looks like what a bunch of us, 40 of us, are going to go see in two months, which is the Grace House. We seek the things that make for peace. We seek deliverance in social, material, and spiritual realities. And the beautiful promise for us is that oftentimes when we seek shalom, we seek real peace, we find tranquility and harmony. This makes a lot of sense, right? You've heard the fruits of the Spirit. Maybe you've been to a church. I've been to a church before that has it like as where you park. And that was kind of weird. I was like, I'm parking in self-control. I don't know how that works. Um, Because I don't have self-control when I drive mission of sin. Um, But love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Love is active, right? Joy is active. Patience is active. Kindness is active. Goodness is active. Gentleness is active. Faithfulness is active. Self-control is active. Why would we assume that peace isn't active? Why would we think that peace is just something you think in your head or you feel? No, peace is active. It does something. It seeks to take broken things and make them whole. And the problem with Jerusalem and the problem with us is that we're inward facing, where peace calls us to be outward facing. We try to make our own peace, and maybe we think things like this you know, if I I would find peace and my life would be whole if I just made enough money, got this job, got married. 
I have great kids and a great family, if I just educate myself, if I just reach this position of status, or if I just indulge these passions that I really enjoy, or if I just really find a good rhythm in life, I'm going to find peace and life is going to be whole. And when we think these things, Jesus weeps because we don't know the things that make for peace. And so Jesus, wiping the tears from his face, he begins to head into the city in another very famous section. It says this, in 45, he entered the temple. This is the first time Jesus has been in the temple since he was 12. And he began to drive out those saying to, that sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Maybe you've heard this passage before and you've thought, this, Jesus is angry because they're selling stuff in the temple. And the message, the lesson, is don't sell stuff in church. Could be. I think that's probably fair in some sense, but that's way too simplistic. The king is coming into his city and he's angered, not simply because they're selling things, because he never even rebukes the sacrificial system here, which needed money changers and needed people to sell birds. Because Jesus knows he's going to replace the sacrificial system in a few short days with his death and his resurrection. He's angry because God's people have destroyed God's system. And so he drives them out. Luke uses the language that connects with the driving out of demons, these oppressive and evil people. He drives them out because this system that he sees, a system that is supposed to be oriented towards God, is oriented to the self. It's self-legitimizing. It's completely closed off to Jesus. It's all about how you look on the outside. Do you look pure? Do you act pure? Do you fall into the system well? Then you can be a part of it. And Jesus flips over the tables. You see, this system that was so focused on how you look and how you act and whether or not you fall into the system was racist. It was completely about segregation. And it was sexist. Gentile and Jew, don't mix, stay apart. Men and, men and women, don't mix, stay apart. And you know what? If you're unclean, if you're broken, if you have issues and you don't fall in the system well, don't even come in. Get yourself right. And then once you get yourself right and pure, then come into God's house. And Jesus flips the tables over. Because that's not how God's system works. That's not his kingdom. That's not the things that make for peace. And we sit there and we're like, amen. Way to go, Jesus. And then you're like, wait, wait. Jesus was angry because of a system that was about legitimizing the self, was focused on the self, and was not oriented towards God. And so it didn't seek the things that make for peace. And then you say, what's our system? What are the things in our culture, in our life, that Jesus would flip over? And immediately your mind goes where? American Western culture. And you think to yourself, Jesus would flip over the tables of corporate greed. He'd flip over the tables of rap culture. He'd flip over the tables of two-faced politicians. He'd flip over the tables of this idea that it's your body and you can do whatever you want with it. He'd flip over the tables of a faulty view of love. He'd flip over the tables of this obsessive focus on personal happiness at the cost of anyone and everything else. He'd flip over the tables of our obsession with image. 
And the list goes on. And it's true, all of these things need shalom. They need deliverance. They need redemption. As the Christian cliche goes, they need Jesus, right? (laughs) Don't say that, please. We hear this list, right, and we think to ourselves, I get caught up in those things too a little bit, right? It's this unrestrained existentialism where I think that everything's meaningless, so I just find meaning for myself. But we have to be really careful that we don't always think that all the problems are out there. Because they're in here too. The question is, is it possible for broken people to ever make a system that isn't broken? I think the answer would be no. And so we look at the church and we say, what's our system? What do we fall into? I want to read you a quote from a book called Unchristian. That is convicting. It says this, Only a small percentage of outsiders, those outside the church, strongly believe that the labels respect, love, hope, and trust describe Christianity. A minority of outsiders perceives Christianity as genuine and real, as something that makes sense and as relevant to their life. And this large survey goes on and says, here are the top six views that when they interviewed people that were not Christians and were outside the church, they said, when you hear about Christianity, when you hear the church, what do you think? Here are their top six. Hypocritical, too focused on getting converts and not loving people. Anti-homosexual, 91%. Sheltered, too political, and 90% judgmental. And you hear that and you're like, that, come on, they don't know anything. That's not true. And I don't think those things are true of this church. But that is what people perceive. And that is what they think. And you know what? It shouldn't shock us because we are broken people that can't create a system that isn't broken. And so we know that we're going to receive labels. And Jesus looks at us and he says, my people, the church, Seek the things that make for peace. Seek shalom. And we've been talking about that, and we've seen that. What that is, is living for God's kingdom. It's living to be a person that lives to deliver and to redeem broken things. It's submitting yourself to the things that Jesus calls you to live for and not living for yourself. Not living just like everybody else. The problem is we don't do it that often. I don't know if you're like me, but that's how I am. I may walk out on Sunday morning or spend time in personal worship and I say to myself, I'm going to seek shalom this week. I am going to be about making the things, doing the things that make for peace. I'm going to, anytime I see something that needs redemption or deliverance in my own life and a life of, I'm going to do it. And so I pull up my bootstraps and I go and it lasts a week, if I'm lucky. Or maybe a season. Anybody else here ever get frustrated that life continues to go in the same pattern and you struggle with the same things over and over and over and over again? I do. Well, if you think that, you're so existential. The reason this happens, and the reason this happens in my life, is because we miss step one. The thing that Luke wants us to see above everything else You think about this culture, this culture that Jesus weeps over and flips the tables 
They were moral. They were good. He flips the tables over, not because they weren't good enough, but because they didn't recognize and acknowledge their king. That's step one. To acknowledge who your king is. Jesus looks at the city in tears in the same way he looks at us and he says, guys, I am the Prince of Peace. I am the one that brings shalom, real shalom, through my life, my death, and my resurrection. I bring redemption for your soul. I offer freedom from judgment. Acknowledge me daily. And when you acknowledge me daily, you will begin to seek the things that make for peace. We see, we hear this, and there's two responses to this command, this thing that Luke wants us to see. You either say, I don't want this man to rule over me. Or you say, Jesus, please rule over me. And if you fall into category number one, and you're here today, and you're searching out, and you've been working through it, and you say, I, I don't know if I want Jesus to rule over me. I, at least I don't know if I want him to rule over all of me. And you live in this kind of unrestrained existentialism where you're making meaning for yourself. I don't know how else to say it. Stop. You're never going to find peace. You're never going to create and manufacture peace for yourself. You just won't. You can try. Think about your life. Have you ever done it? Has it ever lasted? No. And so if that's you, come out of the city and usher in and greet your king. Because he's standing there with tears looking at you, asking for you to come and acknowledge him. And if you're here today and you say, yes, I I completely agree. Jesus, you need to be king. I want you to rule over all of me. Then be really careful not to look outside of yourself. Not to look at the sawdust in the eyes of others before you notice the plank in your own eye. Be careful not to think that you can actually be about living for shalom. Doing the things that make for peace if you don't every single day get up and acknowledge Jesus as king. I wonder sometimes if the church would be different, if I would be different. If I woke up every day and I said this. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Because I think the church would look differently. If we acknowledge Jesus as king every day, and then we sought to live lives of shalom. Or as Solomon says when he ends his book in Ecclesiastes, fear God, do what he says, and then life isn't meaningless. It's incredible. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. You are good to us and you are gracious. Jesus, we thank you that you have wept over us. Lord, that you always and continually deliver truth with concern. Lord, we thank you that we can trust you as our King. And we pray this morning that each one of us would surrender and submit ourselves to you. We'd stop living our lives for ourselves, thinking we can manufacture our own peace We can somehow make life meaningful and not absurd if we just do what we want. But instead, the only place we find meeting, the only place 
that we really find purpose in life is when we daily acknowledge you, is when we do what you say. Seek to deliver broken things. Thank you for delivering us. We are broken things. Lord, we pray that your grace would be evident in our minds and our hearts this morning as we prepare to come to the table, take from your meal. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.